out. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 1 this morning. John 1, we'll begin reading uh, the first five verses if you, uh, when you find your place. John 1, verses 1 through 5. Again, thank you so much, kids, and thank you all uh, for being here with us and worshiping with us today. If you found your place in God's Word, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the hymnal rack in front of you. We would love for you to follow along with us today. We'll be turning over to Galatians chapter 4 in a little while. So if you want to find a, a marker and put it there, that'd be great. Uh, but we'll spend a little bit of time in John chapter 1 up front. God's Word says to us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Highlight or underline that if it's not already underlined in your Bible. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines into darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. It did not, and it could not overwhelm it. 2,000 years ago, Jesus rode in Jerusalem to a massive crowd. Flanking both sides of the street in Jerusalem, there was a red carpet rolled out for him. People had taken their cloaks off and laid them on the path. They waved palm branches like the kids just did, and they laid them on the path in front of him, proclaiming, as the prophets uh, had written before, Hosanna in the Son of God. Let's put that on the screen so everybody can see that if we can. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That word Hosanna is a Hebrew word for praise or hallelujah, glory to God. Blessed is he. Jesus made his way through the streets of Jerusalem and ascended to the Temple Mount, and the audience was captivated. People were convinced this was why Jesus had came. Everybody in his entourage believed this was the reason why Jesus showed up that this was who they had been waiting for. Now, this, these words are from an ancient hymn that David had written a thousand years before. This was a song written to anticipate the Messiah, the son of David that God promised. They dusted off the lyrics of this song for this moment, Israel's savior had arrived. Hosanna in the highest, the king of Israel had come. The kingdom of God was right around the corner, maybe hours away from being put in place. Now, the question was whispered through the streets. Was this indeed why Jesus had come? Was this what his three-year ministry was all about? Was this the culmination of his manifesting the power of God, extending the mercy of God, rebuking the enemies of God? Is this why he ministered to the people of God? Is this why he was seeking to reform the house of God? Was this what it was all building up to? That he could roll into Jerusalem on the ninth of Nisan and be heralded as king of the Jews, adorned with robe, crown, and throne? If you back up even more, we know that Jesus' story doesn't begin on that Palm Sunday. His story doesn't begin with his ministry three years before. His story doesn't even begin with his birth. I mean, normal people, their story begins with their birth. But we know that Jesus wasn't a normal person. He was both God and man. His story begins before his birth at Christmas. John's gospel reminds us that Jesus was there in the beginning. Before he was a man, he was with God. He was God. Now here's something important to know about John's gospel. He starts out from a place in the eternal past. He tells the story from having just spent three years with Jesus Christ. John followed him, he observed him. 
And he was convinced that Jesus Christ was undeniably God made flesh. He couldn't explain it. He didn't try to. But John said, all I know is that if there is a God, that's him. That Jesus embodies God's power, his nature, and his person. John would say, if you've seen Jesus, you have seen God. If you've heard Jesus, you've heard God. John came up with new categories that would go on to detail and define Christianity. And this is the big thing that John is getting at in his first chapter. Jesus wasn't a creation of God. He was the incarnation of God. He wasn't someone who had once not existed and was created. He was the incarnated word of God. Again, that's beyond our our comprehension. But John said, this is the best I can explain it. He had always been with God, even if he hadn't always been a man. When John sat down to write his gospel, inspired, of course, he summarized Jesus in this way, in this first couple verses. John describes Jesus as God's full and final, authoritative, definitive, and ultimate word. That if God has a full and final, authoritative, definitive, and ultimate word, it is Jesus. John, no doubt, had reread the creation story. It all became clear to him. There in Genesis 1, you find God in heaven sending his spirit, but carrying his word to accomplish his will. God created by speaking, right? Let God, and God said, let there be. God created through and by his word. Not just God the Father dictating or God the Spirit initiating, but God's word participated in creation. God's word went forth and created as he went. God spoke and life emanated from quarks to electrons, neutrons and protons. All the subatomic particles came into being and catalyzed together. And from there, matter became a thing. From there, stars and planets in all the universe by God simply speaking it into being. That's the life behind God's word. His word created every element in the universe. From there, light, water, fire, wind, all came into being. Single cells, multi-cells, plants, animal kingdom, and of course, people. The rest, of course, is history. So when John says in chapter 1, 1 through 5, that the word was with God and the word was God, John is telling us that through the word of God, all things were created. That is what Genesis 1 tells us. God said, let there be, and it was. God spoke creation into existence. His word carried forth his power beyond comprehension in our little minds. John tells us that Jesus has always existed. As the second person of God, if you will, alongside the Spirit, the Word of God, equal in essence, has always been. Now, why is John recapping this in the introduction of his gospel? Because it's very important. John is telling the story about how God came, how how God sought to save the world. So John is recapping the story of creation for this reason. God had created by his Word. He would recreate by his word. Notice the parallels. Genesis 1, God creates. Genesis, or in John 1, as John is telling this new story, this new part of the story, this new uh, testament in the story, John says, just as God created with his word, he is going to recreate by his word. Except this time, and this is a big deal, God wasn't going to do so in audio form. As in, God wasn't just going to speak things into existence or speak things into recreation. He was going to do so as a live motion picture 
as a part of the story himself. And that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus is God's complete word, sent to declare God and restore God's creation. Done in verse 14, John puts it this way, the word became flesh. The word was wrapped in flesh. The word put skin on. The word became a person. God, the word became a man and dwelt among us as in set up a tent in our presence as in he has a body like us. He set up a tent. He tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of God. So this is the same glory of God that was there at the beginning. This is the word of God becoming flesh that would declare and reveal God who he'd always had been, but who he had been forgotten and replaced with lesser things. So knowing what we know about creation, it makes complete sense that God becoming a man would result in God becoming a king over all of man. Makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense that Palm Sunday would be the day it all comes together. That just seems like a logical conclusion to what we've been talking about for a few weeks. God created this world for his glory, right? So what would be more glorious than God on a throne? Palm Sunday seemed to be what it was always building up to. That's why God became a man, right? You know, from Jesus' birth to Palm Sunday, this was what anybody that ever encountered him must have thought. From the shepherds to the wise men, from Mary to Zechariah, from the temple faithful at his circumcision to those when he was 12 years old, everyone thought this was why Jesus had come to be king, to rule in and be praised in all of his glory. This was God's plan all along. It had to be. John's gospel doesn't have a normal birth narrative. It doesn't tell the traditional Christmas story because John traces Jesus' origin way back before that. But his prologue still carries that spirit and that wonder that we think about at Christmas time. You know, if you think about Christmas, if you think about Jesus' birth, when Jesus first came into the world, it evokes a sense of wonder, possibility, imagination, opportunity. We celebrate Christmas and enjoy those themes. But to be honest, the only reason Christmas is as heartwarming as it is, is because we know the next chapter. We wouldn't celebrate Christmas just because of the hope. We celebrate because we know where it's going. We know what happens 30 years afterwards, right? The promise of Messiah is great. The potential of a Messiah is inspiring, but the presence and power of Messiah is what changes our lives. So if, 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 if Christmas was just a maybe promise, we wouldn't get nearly as excited. But there's a reason it's more than a maybe. There's a reason it's a definitely. Now we know how the story ends, but many assume that Palm Sunday was the payoff. Many assumed that this was why that baby had been born. This was what the wise men saw in the future. This is why people were afraid of him. The enemies of God feared this man because Palm Sunday was always coming. This day that he comes into town as king of kings, this was what made kings tremble at the name of Jesus. It's what made Herod murder children because he was afraid of this moment. Right? And now, we've been asking why around a lot of different things over the last month. A few weeks ago, we asked maybe the broadest possible question, why did God create the world? Why did he make this world specifically? We concluded this, the holy God created out of his love for his glory. So we focused on three attributes of God, God's holiness, God's love, and God's glory. That's why God created the world. God's holiness moved him out of, sense and, out of a sense of alt. 
He had the power. So when you have the ability, there's a responsibility there. And God, of course, felt it. God's love moved him out of a sense of divine generosity. When you love, you give. It's just what you do. God's glory moved him out of a sense of divine exaltation. This is a category that we can't relate to, but God's glory is the brightness of the universe. It's the light that darkness cannot overcome. It's, it's God's glory is what sustains life that spreads and shines, and it's the only thing that can put out darkness and keep it out. So God created for his glory, and in spite of the rebellion, the world would step into. He moved forward because of that chaos was an opportunity to demonstrate his holy responsibility, to pour out his loving generosity, to magnify his exalted glory. It would seem that this all culminated on Palm Sunday. But we know this is just the beginning of Passion Week. Passion Week, of course, refers to God's passion, him making himself known, his holiness, his love, his glory, all being put on display. But that was not put on display in the triumphal entry as much as it would make sense for it to. The triumphal entry was not the end-all be-all as much as we think it probably should have been. But we're not God. And God had an even more glorious plan. Because Jesus' arrival to Jerusalem doesn't lead him to ascending to a throne, but to be nailed to a cross. This is why Jesus came. This is ultimately why God created this world. So that he might himself come into it one day, adorned with a robe of a different kind, with a crown of a different kind, on a cross, not a throne. That rugged cross embodies this fallen world, its presentation and its circumstances. Jesus on the cross embodies God's heart, holiness, doing what only he could do. Love giving all that he had. Glory exalting all that he is. This moment shows us the end game of God's plan, the telos, the full and final purpose, because God's full and final word is amplified through Jesus. Again, John 1, 5 says, the light has shined into darkness and darkness could not understand it. How could something be so bright? How could something be so powerful? Darkness thought that there was nothing that could dispel it. Because why would a holy God ever do something like that? What does the cross communicate in its claim? Well, it tells us that God is a gracious God that redeems all things, who restores all that was broken and all that is broken. Now, if you think about it, we talk a lot about our world being fallen, our world being broken. But what is the most broken thing about our world? Now, you ask that to a room full of Christians, you'll get a lot of answers, let alone a room full of people that might not be Christians. Think about it. What is the most broken thing? If, if you could isolate the source of what is broken about our world, what would you circle? You go to the doctor and they do an x-ray and they say, this is where it's coming from. This is the problem. This is the spot. Look at a map where land is being surveyed, and this is the problem. If you could isolate the problem for all the brokenness in the universe, what would you draw a circle around? If you could diagnose it and maybe treat it, where would you begin? Well, if you pay attention to the Bible, the story that's told, everything went haywire when the first man and the first woman rebelled against God. That's ground zero. That's the problem. That's the source of the disease. From animals to nature, everything short-circuited because of Adam and Eve's sin. Romans says everybody else suffers because of what they did. 
Animals groan, nature groans, the universe groans because of what Adam did. Suggesting that something was so special, listen, something was so special about their relationship with God, their connection to God, that when it was severed, when Adam and Eve were severed from God's, from, from, from his connection, that the DNA of the universe was altered. From Adam to atoms, macro to micro, when Adam and God lost fellowship, something damaged the whole universe. Now, why do you suppose that? What does the Bible tell us that's unique about people, about Adam and Eve, but also us? The Bible tells us that God created man in his own image, in his own image. He made Adam and Eve, male and female, in his image. So they were made in God's image. But when Adam and Eve sinned, when this relationship was severed, when they were banished from the garden, when they died spiritually, the image of God was dis disgraced and sullied and worse than that, tampered by sin. And I want you to notice something that is told to us five chapters later. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. What does it say? After his image, little h, his as in Adam's image. So from the image of God to the image of Adam, yes, God's the one who created all things. Yes, he's the one who's sovereign over all things. But don't you notice what happened in humanity? From God's image to Adam's image, this is the breakdown. So why did God become one of us? Why did God become a man? The theological answer is to restore his image, to restore us to his image. There's a personal answer, though, that I think is more important to you. You see, if we're born in the image of Adam, what does this suggest? The implication is that our bloodline, we're still created by God as the, through the process that he put in motion. We're still sovereignly put in the world by God, but we're born into Adam's family, right? We're born under Adam's sin. So, 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 when you think about all this, why did God become a man? The incarnation Therefore, is an intervention by God into the lineage, into the bloodline that rejected him. An entrance by God into Adam's image. And what was his goal? What was his aim? Why did he do this? He disgraced his own holiness by stepping in to Adam's image, to Adam's shoes, to bring us back to his image. That's why Jesus did this, not to be a king on a throne in Jerusalem, even though he deserved it. He says, no, guys, I'd love it, but this isn't why I came. Now, what do you call the process or an idea when someone else's child becomes your child? Adoption, right? This is where John's prologue takes a turn, as high and lofty as it may introduce Jesus to us, he makes a very practical, he gives us a very practically clear message about why Jesus came to the world. Why Jesus came to be one of us. Look at verse 9 and we'll read through verse 14. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He's talking about Jesus. He was in the world and the world was made through him. The world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be 
become children of God. Underline, highlight that. Become children of God to those who believe in his name. So there's a, there's a, there's a catch. There's a requirement, right? To those that believe who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh, as in they're not just from Adam's lineage, but they're born, what does it say? Of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. The Father. So I want you to notice two things about this passage. In verse 12, John says the goal was to make us children of God. Now, if God has children, then what does that make God? Verse 14, a father, a brand new concept when it comes to knowing God in the Jewish world, in anybody's world in this time, of, in, in this day and age. So it's starting to come together, I think. Why did God become one of us? To show us that God wants us to know him as father. So why did God become one of us, us grimy, slimy humans? Why did he become one of us? To show us that God wants us to know him as Father. And yeah, there's the glory and there's the exalted lofty language we talk to God with. But God says, I want you to call me one thing, Father. That's what I want to be to you. That's my goal over you. It says there that those that receive him, what does that mean? Does this mean that those that wave the palm branches on Palm Sunday? Not necessarily. Because most of those, many of those, are the same people that would be in the crowd later that week cheering when he was dying. Cheering, crucify him. Instead of blessed be his name. From Hosanna to our king, to we have no king but Caesar. What happened? Well, those people that cheered his entry while their declaration was accurate, their praise was appropriate, they saw Jesus as a means, not an end. His reign would be their gain. It wasn't about his fame. But again, why did God become one of us? To restore us, to save us from that place of sin and selfishness. To save us in what would be the result of his saving work, that we might be adopted into his family. The emphasis here is become children of God. Be born of God. Again, this is a transaction that takes place. This adoption is like being reborn. When a child is taken from one family and put in another, especially at a young age, it's like they're reborn into a new family, isn't it? This rebirth is a total restoration of our souls where God is no longer a category for self-advancement, but he becomes something way better. He becomes a father to us. You, you see, I think this is equally as revelatory about us as it is about God, isn't it? I mean, again, Jesus came to make us know who God is, but I think this reveals something about us to us, doesn't it? Something that a lot of times religion doesn't teach. Jesus came to reveal God as father of all and restore us as children of God. Listen, there was no question who God was. God didn't need us to acknowledge him. Do you think God needed the world to acknowledge who he is? He has the stars. He has the universe. He was okay. Yeah, he deserved our attention. He deserves our praise. He wants it, of course, but he didn't need it. So why would he do all this? To restore us to the place that we didn't even realize we could have been to begin with. Verse 15 through 18. 
John bore witness of him and cried out, This was he who, of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Of his fullness, we have all received grace for grace. As in, what do we get from Jesus? Grace upon grace. And I love this next verse. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom or who is from the father or who reveals the father has declared him, has made him known. If your Bible doesn't, if your translation doesn't say that, write that in the margins, has made him known, has declared, has manifested, has made him known is the simple way to put it. Made him known as what? As who? Jesus came to make God known to us, God our Father, and make us known to God as his children. I love the emphasis in verse 17, grace and truth, as in contrasted to the law. The law was a system of do's and don'ts. It was a band-aid that exposed our sin, but by no means fixed it. But the law also watered down the severity of our sin in that it pushed off the consequences onto somebody else, onto something else, something minor, something an animal. It made us think the consequences aren't real or aren't pressing. Isn't it true that, that religion can kind of make you numb to your own sin? Isn't it true that religion kind of convinces us that we can kind of go and do the same thing over and over again and come back to church and confess it and get out and do it again? Religion doesn't fix sin. It makes us numb to it. The law was given by a man. He couldn't fix anything. But grace and truth, as in the truth of our sin severity, because it put him on the cross. But the grace of God was also magnified, and God was glorified as the only solution. In Jesus' revelation of God as Father, we see that the restoration through the cross brings us into a relationship with God. Not just any relationship, not just a handshake, hey, how you doing, buddy, or I'll check in with you next week, but as a dependent child, as a child who doesn't have anybody else to look to or lean on or depend on, a child who knows that when they look in the eyes of their father in heaven, he has not just the world in his hands, but them, you. Back to Adam and Eve. When they walked out of the garden, when they walked away from relying on God, they walked out of the Father's house. They said to him, give us our inheritance. We want to be on our own. And you know what God did to them? He let them go. You've heard that parable before, haven't you? He let them go. And while it didn't dawn on them, every descendant ever since has found themselves in the mud Realizing what separation from God has done to them with regret and loneliness and begging for mercy, orphaned by our ancestors, we found ourselves in bondage to an enemy who lorded over us and mocked us with religion, promising to fix us, but only trapping and taunting us. Like a step-sibling that never accepted us as their own. Their goal was just to torture and condemn us and block us from getting out. But God... <laughs> But God sent our big brother. God sent his son to ransom and rescue us from sin so that he could adopt us back into his family. John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld him as God's son, modeling for us what God wanted from the beginning, that we would all be children of God. Of course, there's just one Jesus, 
but showing us the way. God sent Jesus to show us that he is God's son and that we can become children under, alongside, and through him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his incarnated son, his divine son, to gain us as adopted sons and daughters. Verse 18 makes it very clear, almost ominously clear. No one has ever seen God at any time. You will never truly see or know God apart from Jesus Christ. I don't care what you see. I don't care what, you, what you've experienced. I don't care what your story is. Unless you come through Jesus Christ, we will never experience or know God. But if we come through Jesus, if we are adopted by Jesus and by, by God, we are in the family of God forever. Before we leave, I want you to know what this means for you. I, I want you to be able to get all that you can. I want you to make sure you got room in your cart today to get all of what it means to be a son and daughter of God. Because I don't think I can, I can't oversell this by no means. Flip over with me in Galatians 4. I want you to read 1 through 7 with me in closing. Galatians 4, midway through the New Testament. Paul's writing about what it means to be adopted into God's family. And he uses a phrase here that is so, so, so big. Drop in at verse number one. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he's a master of all. But is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why did he come? To redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, the reason why it says sons and not daughters is because in the Roman world, you could not adopt daughters. Only sons were even worthy, were considered for adoption. But thank God, God has widened the fence. He's widened the line. The adoption is children. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, where you cry out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son or a child. And if you're a child, then you are an heir. You're an heir of God. Now, I want to put this on the screen to match with its parallel from Romans, where Paul says, we're children of God. If we're children, we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. It's a pretty big deal. The passage summarizes what it means to be a child of God, free from the world, filled with the spirit, dependent on God, where you're literally calling out to your daddy. Abba means daddy in, in, in Aramaic. That's what the cross affords us, restores us, to God. The implication is this, that Jesus came as God's son so that we all might be his sons and his daughters. He's the natural heir. He's before us and he's in front of us. He's God, of course, but we are adopted heirs and what he has, we have. Now here, listen to that. Our, he'll always be big brother. He'll always be God, but we are adopted heirs sharing in his equity. Would you just consider and marvel with, this, with me this morning, the creator of the universe, the king of the cosmos, Hosanna in the highest. We call him father. We call him daddy. Now, religion makes you uncomfortable with that because it wants you to be stiff and detached from God. Our flesh wants to settle on that. But listen, there's no life in that. You need to understand God is your father. And he wants you to be that personal. And rebuke any religion that makes it feel uncomfortable to talk like that. 
The promise that we are heirs of God. Everything that belongs to God belongs to us. Revealed now in part, revealed next in full. Now, we can't get all of it now. In our flesh, we'll become idolatrous in a minute if we had everything within our grasp. But we do have within our grasp the things of the Spirit, peace, joy, fulfillment, things that can't be quantified in the flesh, things that can be felt by your soul. But one day, we'll be glorified with Jesus. We suffer a little while now, tempted in denying our flesh, suffering onslaughts from the enemy, brokenness of this world. But one day, God will glorify us, completing the image of Christ. What has Jesus revealed to us? That God is our Father, and suddenly we don't have some disembodied deity saying it'll be okay. We have a heavenly Father promising us something better. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. What is his purpose for you? That those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, to bring you back to the place you were always meant to be, to be his child, to be dependent on him. Now, Christ was the firstborn of many brethren. Who's the brethren? You and me. He says, moreover, whom he predestined, he also called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he will glorify. That's in the future. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? This is what's accessible to you through Christ. God became one of us so that we could be one of his. So that we might be adopted into his family and relish in the riches of knowing him now by the spirit next in his glory. God took on flesh so that we might take on glory in eternity. The image of Adam, we hear this and we think selfish fleshly things, but restored to the image of Christ, we think godly things, that which honors him and glorifies him. In sin, we think about us, but in Christ, we think about him. As Christ glorified his father with his life, so can and so will we. So, why did God become one of us? So that we might know him as our father, so that we might belong to him as his son and as his daughter. So that you might enjoy life as joint heirs with Jesus, as heirs of God. You can't get much better than that, can you? You know, calling God Father and knowing God as Father are two different things. Jesus said eternal life is knowing God. And how did he reveal God as Father? So I've got to ask you, do you know God as your perfect heavenly Father? And I'm not trying to judge you or condemn you if this is something that you've never been taught or you know, raised in or, 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 or revealed to from the Scripture. Because as a Christian, you may believe in God and trust in God and be saved, but you don't have this relationship with God that you can have. And mainly because religion has made you feel uncomfortable about it. The world has distracted you from it. And sin has made you think about this in all the wrong ways. Do you know God as your father? Jesus modeled for us. He, he was devoted to God. He was dependent on God. He desired him. He delighted in him. 
Jesus became one of us so that we might be one with him, united with him, heirs with him, under our Father. In closing, I want you to listen to this prayer that Jesus prayed for us, for you, for you. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. Therefore, I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Father, I pray that they get this. I came not to ride into town on a donkey and be celebrated as king, even though I am king. I came not for all the pomp and the circumstance, but to make you known as father. God is your father. Through Christ, you are his child. When you're with, when you're one with, united with, dependent on a father who is 100% trustworthy, you don't have to wonder or doubt or question or fear or worry about anything. Come on, when you are guaranteed heir of God the Father, creator and sustainer of all things, why should you ever be afraid? Why would you ever question his will? If you've been adopted into his family, this is the peace and pleasure you can have. This is the invitation to us all. So, why did God become one of us? To make us one of his so that we could be one with him. Christ before us, beside us, and within us. God our Father above us. Jesus came to us to bring us to God and to bring God to us. What could go wrong if this is the world that you live in? There's a lot wrong out there, I get it. What could go wrong if God is your Father? You're an heir of God. Joint heirs with Jesus. Nothing could go wrong. Nothing at all. This is the relationship you, is this the relationship you have with God? If it isn't, what are you waiting on? Spoiler alert, next week makes all this possible for you. This is why Jesus came to the world, to adopt you into God's family and adapt you to his new glorious way of life. So why are you settling for less? Why would you? Because God has made a way by being one of us to make us one of his so that you can be one with him. I don't got nothing better than that, y'all. Let me pray for you. Father, this is too good. This is too good for me to be a messenger of. We wonder, why did you come into this world? It seems like you came into the world to become a king, but you didn't do that. You bypassed the throne. You bypassed the power and the glory, and you went to a cross. And the cross is what gives us the opportunity to be adopted into your family. Jesus came that we might know you as our father and we might know ourselves as your children. So Lord, I pray that there's some people in the house today, if they're being honest, they they don't know you like this. And maybe if they're being honest, they've never been saved. They've never received Christ as their savior and they've just been playing religion games for a while. And maybe they want to come and say, God, I don't know what I don't have, but I know, what I, I know that I need you and I know that I want you and I want to have this relationship with you. 
God, maybe there's just some Christians in the house today that would just confess that they, they treat you like you're just some stiff idol that lives in a building and they check in with you and they pray to you every once in a while, but they don't know you like this. And they read scripture that says, you have made us heirs of God. You have made us joint heirs with Jesus. You have given us all things that we could ever need. Not materially, but spiritually and things that this world can't give us. So why would we ever question or worry or wonder what's going on when you are our father and we are your child? So God, would you help everybody in the house today have this peace? Would you help everybody in the house today have this confirmation? If they don't have it, would you give it to them today? Lord, I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.